there are a couple scriptures that I want to mention to you. You don't need to uh, turn to them this morning. <clears throat> First one is Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Proverbs 14, 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Those statements about nations, I want you to notice, use nothing but moral terms. They're not political terms. Exalting, being a great nation, being disgraced or reproached are all moral, spiritual terms which all imply from Scripture that we have we live in a universe with a moral governor who created it and us and instituted his law. We live in a spiritual world where God is God. He is in charge. Now, let me just stop for a second there. God is in charge in this sense. He created this world. He created all of the physical laws, gravity, whatever. He upholds this world completely with the word of his power. He made us and granted to us part of being made in his image and likeness that we have, like him, three fundamental faculties. One, the power to choose. Two, reason, power to reason, to think. Three, the power to feel affections or emotions. So we, like God, choose, think, and feel. We're the only beings in his whole universe beside him that currently have that power. For a while, it seems, the angels did. They participated in a rebellion in heaven led by the devil. We're not certain, but possibly as many as a third of the angels used their power of choice to join the rebellion. As a result, God, it says, cast Satan and his angels to earth and froze, as it were, their capacity to choose 
with the choice that they made because he didn't provide any redemption for them. So they had a power to choose. They used it to rebel. God reprobated them, cast them out of heaven, and for them there is no redemption. He created hell as a place for the devil and his angels. God never intended for any human to ever inhabit that place that he made for the devil and his angels. He didn't plan for humans to live there. He created us then with a choice as to what to do with his rule over us. Now, why am I going into all this? Because it seems contradictory that God, to say, God rules over all. His kingdom ruleth over all, the Psalms say. He does whatsoever he pleases. That's all true. But there's one window, one field carved out where he, still being sovereign, sovereignly determined that we could have the power of choice, we could exercise that choice, and he would permit that exercise of choice even if it were against his law. That permission is temporary, but it's real. So it seems at times to think, well, if God is ruling things, why do we have evil? Why do we have trouble? Why doesn't his will get followed? It's because he created us in his image. And if we're going to be in his image, we have to reflect him, especially in the power of choice. And he honors that temporarily. Only God, the longer I think about things like this, only God can engage in the incredibly complex business of balancing, letting people have their choice, letting them wreak havoc in the world and the world around them and sometimes the people in their lives. He, he knows how to balance the harm that goes with allowing free will with the barriers he has put up thus far and no more. Now, he'll give us his choice, but if he has to, and I know this flies in the face of all the folk nonsense we have about God, but if he sees my disobedience, which he allows, rises to such a level that he can no longer permit it and the damage being caused is sufficient, he will kill you.
You realize that? He'll kill you. He did it in the flood. He did it in the flood. There were only eight people left out of, we have no idea. But it would have been a huge number. But the rot reached a level where he said, I'm done. I won't permit it anymore. Now, notice, he didn't sovereignly ride roughshod over one single person who decided in their heart to reject him. He didn't make people start loving him. He didn't impose that on them. He gave them still that right. But he took their lives away. Put an end to it. So God still runs things while not coercing, canceling your free will and my free will. No human can barely figure that out and none of us could ever take God's place. And I've thought about that a lot because often it's through the Bible the Bible's filled with good people who have said, Lord, why do the wicked triumph? What's going on here? <laughs> that is sometimes unfolded a bit after the fact. And we may see that was God's hand. He allowed this for a while. He taught some lessons and so forth. But we still can't really penetrate that and I think we don't realize sometimes we're praying that essentially God would act in a way that would cancel his image in us Lord put a stop to that well to a degree I know there's no necessity upon God to say he can't but he can't he can't honor the being he created with a free will in his image and then turn around and coerce them to do right. Now, does he thwart? Yeah, just read a couple days ago in my devotions. He thwarts the plans of the nations. He thwarts a lot of things. He may do that not by changing the attitude and the decision and the will of the person doing it, but he just stops it. Isaiah prayed to the Lord and said, there's the great king of the Assyrians, Sennacherib. And he's shown up outside the walls of Jerusalem. He has surrounded it with an army that is so vast we don't have a chance against it. And he said he's going to do this and this and this and this. What do we do? God said, no, he's not. <laughs> he thinks he is, but he isn't going to. I'm not changing his mind, but I'm going to thwart what he plans to do. And then he said, 
basically, I'll take care of it. And Hezekiah the king and Isaiah trusted God's word. He would take care of it. And the next night, God, it simply says, sent his angel and killed 185,000 of Sennacherib's soldiers. And it wasn't all of them. So that's how big a group it was. When they got up in the morning, they decided not to do that. <laughs> they decided they'd leave Jerusalem alone. And he went back, the king went back to his own city of Nineveh, went into the house of his God that had evidently failed him to worship that God. Why, I don't know. His God failed him. And while he was in there worshiping this failure of a God, his two sons assassinated him. Sennacherib never bowed the knee to God. He never acknowledged God from his heart. But God thwarted what he was going to do. So God knows how to balance allowing free will but thwarting acts that people plan to do. He is still in charge. Now, just a couple thoughts that I want to give us today. It sounds like we're starting out negative. I think we have to face reality. In our culture and in our country, if there's ever a scripture that seems to describe where we are, the enemy is coming in like a flood. It's just a fact. And in what sense? Militarily? Financially? Politically? No. Morally. Spiritually. Our exaltation and our decline is spiritual. It is not world markets. It's not global trade. It's, it's spiritual. It's how we relate to that moral governor who is 99% of the time forgotten. Most of the world regardless of what they might profess to believe in as believe in a God or whatever, are practical atheists. The vast majority, practical atheists. They act as if there is no God. They live their life on their own terms. They plot their own course. And they don't regard God at all until they get in trouble. Then, of course, oh, we need God. Times of crisis, whether it be national or personal, oh, you know, we, we need thoughts and prayers. And the minute we get in the clear, we're right back to being a practical atheist. We don't order our lives after his laws at all. Our problems then, our good and our failure is directly related to our relationship to God. Blessed is the nation 
whose God is the Lord. Now, we have to also, though, recognize that no nation, technically, no nation is righteous or can be righteous. A nation's not an entity that can be righteous or be wicked. It's the individuals that make up the nation. In other words, righteousness is in the hearts of the citizens. Righteousness is individuals. Think about this just today. Jesus fulfills his promise every time we meet together, where two or three will meet in my name. He said, I'll be there. There are, can be, huge crowds of people that gather in a building that has the word church somewhere in its name. But if they're, not, if they're not meeting in Jesus' name, meaning under his lordship, to do his will, to serve him completely, to love him and obey him, I don't care if there's 10,000 there. He isn't. Book of Revelation says, I will take away your churchness. I'll take the candlestick out. And that meant the light of being a church. But he fulfills then his promise to meet with us and manifest his presence to us because individually, let's put it this way, how does Jesus get to church? In your heart and in my heart. And when we walk into this building and we've come here with a purpose, I love Jesus. He takes priority. I'm here to worship him. And when a group together agrees on that and we gather together, God's there. And we are blessed. If enough individuals let Jesus rule in their hearts. The founders recognized this. And the little video we watched, the founders didn't give any of these rights to us, nor did the founders think they did. They said we are all endowed with unalienable rights from our maker. So the state doesn't give me rights. God does. The state can't give me true freedom only God can. They recognized that. John Adams made a fundamental, profound statement. He said, Our Constitution is designed only for a moral and religious people. Second sentence, it is the Constitution wholly inadequate to rule any other people? It assumes 
godliness. And in a, a sense then, the self-government that comes from the hearts of those who submit to God's law are the only people capable of having a democracy where people have a voice. Fallen human beings without Christ cannot be trusted with freedom. They'll abuse it. Always. So the only, the only way we can be truly free is to be a servant to God. It was William Penn, founder of the colony, which, of course, became the state of Pennsylvania, that said, we will be ruled by God or we will be ruled by tyrants. That's true. G.K. Chesterton famous writer, thinker, apologist for Christianity, a lot of things. Author, by the way, of the Father Brown series. Okay? But he said we will, similarly, he said we will either voluntarily submit to God's ten laws or we will be subjugated to man's 10,000 laws. I don't, when David was asked, remember David was given a choice of, he had numbered the soldiers of Israel, which God said, don't do that. I know the number, you'll trust in the number, so you just trust me and don't number the soldiers. Well, David did and God was displeased with him and he said all right I'm going to give you three choices <clears throat> you're going to be under a plague from the Lord for three days you will run from your enemies for three months or you'll have three years of famine and pestilence and so forth and David made a great statement true statement he said, let me fall under the hand of the Lord and not under the hand of men. Because he said, with the Lord, there's mercy. The worst ruler we can have is people. But that's what we have if we won't let God rule. And that rule, once again, comes back to my own heart. Enough individuals who love God and walk with God makes a nation exalted. The laws reflect God's law. And in spite of what, how far it seems we are, you know, it's, I probably, I hope I don't have a mean streak. Um, or a vindictive streak, too much. But I think about all of the godless people that 
go into the Supreme Court even to argue cases to banish further God from our culture. And all they have to do if they look up above on the wall is a sculpture of Moses with the two tablets and the ten laws. I, I feel just like Maybe they don't pay any attention to it, but it still is there. Now, the bad news is that the enemy's coming in like a flood because as a nation, enough people have turned their backs on God. We don't want God. This is what you get in the wake of that kind of a decision. You don't want God? Okay you have a little bit of hell to go to hell in. Because ultimately, hell is nothing but the total absence of the presence of God. You want unity. You want kindness. You want mercy. You don't have it when you say no to God. And God, again, will acquiesce to our choice. We don't want him. He said, all right. You have the opposite. Misery, chaos, anarchy, lawlessness, evil, murder, everything. That's what we have. And here, as all of our culture is just in uproar, everyone looks around for a reason. And it's always poverty, lack of education, or some nonsense, but no one will say we don't want God. So we've gotten the opposite. It's quite simple. And the only way back is a revival. Now, I only have not very many minutes. Let me just give you my bad news. I hope I'm dead wrong. I really do. But having never been wrong, I don't see anywhere in Scripture, and I hope I'm wrong, I don't see anywhere in Scripture this worldwide revival that everybody, TV preachers talk about. God said in the latter days things will get worse and worse and worse and worse. Deceiving and being deceived. But, here's what I want to finish with. The passage that says the enemy's coming in like a flood, that's not the whole passage. It said, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. We still have a God. He temporarily lets people have their way, but not forever. And he still has the power of life and death and final judgment in his hand. And we have some, to me, heartening things 
I noticed, I watched, and maybe some of you did, a man interviewed who lost, probably, his grandmother in the collapse of the building down in Florida. And I saw him interviewed a couple times. But a bit longer interview I saw just a couple days ago. And, you know, they ask, how are you dealing, you know, with all this? And he told them that walking around the edge of the rubble, his father, whose mother was in the building, stepped on a card. Now this is, we can say, unbelievable. I don't believe it's an accident. He stepped on a card and picked it up in this vast field of rubble, picked it up. It was a card to his grandmother from her church prayer group that was sent on her birthday some days before all this happened. Now, how does that happen? And he stood there, have no idea how many millions of people were watching it, but he said the words of a song from his church. He said our worship team just sang previous week came to his mind, I don't remember the song, and he said, I knew and I know now. And he said, this is how I can deal with this. If she's still alive in that rubble, God's with her. And he said, if she's not, she's with God in heaven. So he said, either way, I'm okay. Now, God just goes around doing stuff like that. I hope there are people gritting their teeth, you know, and hitting the remote because they're mad hearing about God. Too bad. Because God just jammed that down your throat. What does it tell me, though, as I stood, as I watched that? You know, I thought, Lord, we're not alone. Those of us gathered in Gillette, we think, man, alive. I'm, and I'm glad I live in Wyoming. Growing up in Oregon, I'm telling you what. Spent half my life there. The Lord willing, I don't ever have to go there again. It's ruined. And I'm thankful to be hunkered down in Wyoming. But there are Christians everywhere, just like that guy. And what I remembered watching that, I thought, Lord, that's what you see. I can't see that. But God looks all over, says, from his dwelling place, the eyes of the Lord behold all living. So he sees the church gathered in Florida. He sees, he sees the little church out in the rural Midwest with only six or seven cars pulled up to it. And they're banging away on some old upright piano and they're singing the hymns. He sees that. He sees it. He looks at things 
with a broader view than you and I can. And I still believe he can say, as he encouraged a favorite, I think, of a lot of us, dear, poor, dejected Elijah, Lord, I'm it. I'm literally the last guy standing in all of Israel who loves you. And God talked to him, gave him a new assignment, encouraged his heart, and did something. And then almost as an afterthought, which there isn't such a thing with God, but as an afterthought, after Elijah had repeatedly said, I'm the only one, I'm the only one, God said, um, by the way, you're not the only one. I still got 7,000 that haven't bowed the, knee to, bowed the knee to the false gods. Now, frankly, you need to know something. 7,000 out of Israel that in that day was nothing. I mean, that's minuscule. There were probably several million, two to three million Israelites in the land of Palestine. And God saying, don't lose heart. I still have 7,000. Yeah, but 7,000 to God plus God is a majority. And I'm comforted too thinking after that video remembering Sodom and Gomorrah. We can't quite picture the repugnance that was to God. It was an open sewer and a stench in God's nostrils. And he said, I'm going to come down and I'm going to burn the place up. I've had it. Abraham thinking that knowing that his nephew Lot and his family were there, began to pray, Lord, it wouldn't be right for you to destroy the righteous with the wicked, would it? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He says, if, there, if you can find 50 righteous there, would you spare it? Now, remember, this is, this is an open sewer to God. If I can find 50, all right, I'll spare it. And you know the rest. Abraham, I think, was still timid. Well, cuts it by five. How about if there's 45? I'll spare 45. Well, he gets a little bolder, I think, and he goes 10 now and keeps dropping. And God got God to 10. If you can only find 10. And Abraham thought he was safe. He didn't realize there were only four. And they were a little questionable. But he said, if they're, if they're just 10, God said, I'll spare it. Think about that. That stench rising up 
to God's nostrils. He said, if I can only find 10, I'll spare the whole stinking mess if there are 10. I comfort myself, and I think God wants us to comfort ourselves because deep discouragement, we lose heart. We still have, there are more than 10 righteous in our country. And God sees us all. I know I got to quit, but I know that not every church is preaching the truth that they should be and so forth. But still, this is maybe 10 years ago. I'm sure the numbers have changed somewhat. But if you took every single, the, the attendance at every single sports event, pro, college, high school, and of course clear down to the, you know, the three-year-olds that are traveling to Florida for some tournament, you take all of those, they are, all that attendance across the United States, it's less than in the United States are gathered in churches on a Sunday. Now again, a lot of churches, that includes everything. That includes cults, includes a lot that we wouldn't really count as Christian. But nevertheless, we're being lied to in a lot of ways, and the enemy's behind it, that there's no hope, and that it's, it, it's Katie bar the doors, we're shot. There's still a God and I still believe there are ten, there, seven thousand have bowed the knee, and God's the same. If He'll spare a cesspool, if He can find ten righteous, He's still paying attention to us. He's still for us. He's still calling to us. And I'll close with this thought: I do think what God's doing with all that we see today reminded me of finished a book the other day on World War II and in Pacific. But the same thing went, uh, took place in Europe. Out of some sense of decency, even in the middle of war, Americans, the Allies, would drop tens and tens and thousands of thousands of leaflets over an area to warn them, we're going to bomb you. Dresden, Hiroshima, they dropped leaflets. We're, you better get out of there. I really think the rise in all we see, it's leaflets that God's given to us. It's warning. This is, this is the road you're heading down. Turn and live. So, what do you and I have to do? Keep praying, but also keep being righteous. We're salt that retards spoilage. So though it seems storm clouds are gathering, and they are, we can't pretend they're not, all hope is not gone because God isn't gone. Neither are all of his people. 
hope that encourages our hearts. I need it much. I think we all do. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dan, if you'd come and dismiss us. Father in heaven, as always in the quiet of this sanctuary, we want to thank you for your presence, thank you for your word, thank you for your truth that was spoken this morning. But one question that you laid on my heart as our pastor was sharing your word this morning in regards to Elijah, when you said you still have 7,000 that have not kneeled to the false idols, question that rings in my head, Lord, would I be counted as one of the 7,000 by you? That's the most important thing that we need to consider is would you count us, not would we count ourselves, but would you count us as one of the 7,000? I know you're faithful to speak to our hearts, Lord, because we need you. We find hope not in our circumstances, but in a person. And that person is our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we be a group of Christians that are not Christian because of our circumstance, but we are Christians because of Christ. Help us to be that church as we leave this place today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. You're dismissed. Have a great day, everyone.